John was born in Haddington, East Lothian between 1513 and 1515. John received his schooling from the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. He would go on to become a priest where he would teach and regularly tutor students. After the murder of Cardinal Beaton by the Queen, John returned to St. Andrews to join in with the Reformation going on there in Scotland. Within a matter of months, John would be enslaved because of these teachings. In 1549, John was released and traveled to England. There he became a pastor where he eventually found his way into the chaplaincy of King Edward VI. For much of his ministry, he would live somewhat of a nomadic existence, traveling back from the continent to the Isle, spending time with Calvin and Geneva and with other reformers. After the death of Queen Mary, who we know as Bloody Mary, she was succeeded by Elizabeth I, her half-sister. It was during this reign that John was able then to return to Scotland and begin to minister in work. Although him and Elizabeth didn't have the best of a relationship, because several years earlier, John had written a, a scathing article in which he detailed how women should not be queens, and particularly an attack against Elizabeth's half-sister, Mary. It was during her reign that John was able then to return to Scotland and carry on the work that he began many years earlier. John died of natural death on November 24, 1572, after having worked to reform the church there in Scotland. Uh, today, our Presbyterian brothers are heirs of the work that John Knox did there to help reform the church. Even we are heirs of the much the work that he did on the continent as our particular Baptist came from England. He stood fearlessly in the face of ruthless kings and queens on really the truth of Scripture. John was convinced that the Bible alone was the means by which we were to understand who God was. And through that, he came to the understanding that salvation is not by works, but by grace alone. Grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. The gospel that we hold so dearly. Last week, we began a five-part study uh, working through this month, uh, in fact, at the end of the month, is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And, and this morning, if you did not know that, we are Protestant, but more specifically, we are Baptist, right? Uh, and, and so we uh, come from that stream, uh, coming from uh, Zwingli and Calvin and Luther and their work that they did in reforming the Church of England. And we uh, are the Church of Rome and then the Church of England. Uh, this month really marks then the 500th anniversary. I wanted to take time because uh, maybe some of us just really didn't know where we came from. Uh, we didn't know some of these things. And more importantly, I didn't want to preach topical sermons because I think that would really uh, just kind of go against what the Reformers were doing. But to point back to the theology that they taught, uh, that is, the, the theology that was so central to the Reformation is central to us. And as you'll hopefully see, these things are not new. These are not things that are, are really uh, unknown to us. But rather to protect us, to guard us, to warn us, from perhaps slipping into some of the errors that they sought to correct. We considered last week sola scriptura, scripture alone. That was really the key that unlocked the whole Reformation, was a return to the scriptures. 
that before that, no one really had the Bible, no one read the Bible. It, it was only read in the Mass, and it was read in Latin, which nobody knew. And it, it was when they began to translate and understand the Bible in their own language, it unlocked the, the mystery of the Gospel. Unlocked the, the mystery that salvation is not by works. It's, it's not through the Pope, but it's through Christ. And so they began to understand Something about justification. And central to the Reformation was justification. And you might be like, that's a big Bible word. I don't know what that means. Uh, I heard it earlier when we read Scripture. What is justification? Justification in the Bible is a declaration by God that we are accepted, that we are saved, that He accepts us, He justifies us, He permits us into His presence. And the question was, how does that happen? How are we justified before God? Is it by works? By some combination of our faith and works? Is it by baptism? Or is it by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to God's glory alone? How are we saved? You see, central to the Catholic theology even today uh, concerning, particularly coming from the Council of Trent and even the last uh, few Vaticans, none of that was undone. Central to Catholic theology concerning justification is that we cooperate with God in salvation. That our faith and works come together through the grace of God, yes, but it is by works, not by grace alone. That in the baptism, the communant is made righteous before God. Their sins are washed away through baptism, and therefore they are holy. Today, if we were to call up a Roman Catholic priest and ask him, do you believe in salvation by faith alone, he, or by faith, he would say, yes, I believe salvation is by faith, but that faith works with work comes together and is joined together by our cooperation in salvation. This is what was really defeated and, and taught against by Augustine when Pelagius tried to convince the church that we somehow cooperate in salvation. Even in recent times in America, through revivalism, there was this understanding that we somehow come to God. Do we come forward to God? As we sang at the beginning this morning in And Can It Be, Wesley articulates something very different, that God comes to us, that we do not come to God, that we don't make that first step towards God. And so the question remains for you and I this morning, do you think that salvation is by grace alone? Or do you think that you can somehow be good enough to earn God's favor? Do you think that before salvation God was impressed with you? Do you think that before salvation that God somehow looked into the future and said, wow, that person is going to do something great for me, therefore I want him on my team? Can you ever do good enough in your life to get God's attention? And if you don't, and I hear many, no, I, I don't, then why, then why do you lack assurance? Why are you often despaired into thinking that God does not love you? Why are you as a Christian this morning maybe considering and contemplating the fact that maybe God is upset with me today? That I didn't do enough this week to earn God's love. 
I feel I don't measure up to God's standard. I, I, I didn't read my Bible this week. I, I didn't pray. Sure, I had those passing prayers in the car as I was driving to work or coming to church. In fact, this morning is the first time I've seen my Bible all week. I, hadn't, I didn't know where it was. And here it is. And based on all of those facts, which are true and sin, so we're not denying that that's sin, you sense in your soul that God's love for you has decreased. Or worse yet, you think that the bad stuff in your life is because you disobeyed God. You think that the trials and the cancer and the sickness and the bad phone call you got this week and the bad reports this week is somehow because you did something to tick God off. That you weren't faithful enough. That's a theology that's very popular today. There's a dude with a globe spinning around and he preaches that theology. And it's not true. As we'll see clearly in God's word. I invite you to open up. Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, enough of me talking, let's hear from God. Ephesians chapter 2, page 976 in the Pew Bible, just invite you to open that Bible up, uh, look at it, uh, you'll find what's written there much more interesting than what I have to say, and much more fruitful. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and you, you all... We're dead in the trespasses and the sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards you, towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Well friends I hope you see the passage before you is so very clear. By grace you have been saved through faith. Paul makes clear in this passage that salvation is by grace alone. But notice he doesn't set aside works. He doesn't say that works are unimportant. But that works come after salvation, not before salvation. And friends, that's really true of the whole Bible. Salvation has always been by grace alone, through faith, and never by works. And so the passage before us demonstrates that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. That was the, the cry of the reformers, and that is the cry of Scripture. And that is our belief this morning, that salvation is by grace alone. 
Salvation of sinners is not by human effort or human merit, but by grace alone. Therefore, God alone is able to save sinners. God alone is worthy of praise. Salvation is God's from beginning to end. And I hope to encourage you with that truth this morning. I hope to build your faith in that this morning. Uh, And I hope to blow up this morning maybe your pride as you've gathered here this morning thinking that you earned your salvation, that you have done something in your life that God looks down and says, wow, I'm impressed. I hope to demonstrate to you this morning there's nothing impressive about us, but the only one that's impressive is Jesus. Our passage this morning outlines three reasons why you should believe that salvation is by grace alone. There are three reasons outlined in this passage why salvation must be by grace alone. It must be. It can't be any other way. It it has to be by grace alone. This passage outlines three reasons. First, salvation must be by grace alone because of the fallen condition of humanity. Because of humanity's hopeless condition, salvation must be by grace alone. Secondly, salvation must be by grace alone because God alone is able to make dead men alive again. God alone has the ability to raise dead men to life. We do not have that ability in and of ourselves to to breathe life into ourselves. No more you were born into this world and had control over that than you did in your own salvation. You didn't get to choose who your mom and dad were. You didn't get to choose where you lived or when you lived. It was by God alone. And third and finally, salvation must be by grace alone because our good works will never merit salvation. We can't do enough. There's not enough good works we can do in our lives that will ever outshine the wicked and vileness of our sin. That one sin against an infinitely holy God demands an infinite punishment. We've got a debt to pay that we will never be able to pay. And no amount of work, no amount of obedience, no amount of love, no amount of impressive Bible reading skills or prayer, no no, no, no amount of nothing will ever be able to save you. So let's consider these three points very quickly this morning. First, salvation must be by grace alone because of fallen humanity's hopeless condition. Paul outlines in the first three verses of this section some of the most vile and wicked He tells us of our hopeless condition, that humanity is hopeless. Let's look at him again. He begins by saying, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Uh, He describes these Ephesian Christians as dead men walking, as dead men and women who were living in sin. He describes them as once being dead in their trespasses and sin. The emphasis here is on their moral and spiritual deficiency. They were morally and spiritually deficient. There was nothing in them. Now, he's not saying they were literally dead. 
like, you know, physically, right? right? They weren't literally, like, dead. That, that would be kind of creepy and weird, right? You no, know, no, he's not talking to people at the cemetery. He's talking about people that are spiritually dead, that is morally deficient. That is, if they tried to do something good, they would mess it up. That, that as, as the prophet Isaiah says, all of our deeds are filthy rags. Now, this does not mean that as non-Christians, do, that you don't do good things, right? This does not mean that non-Christians cannot love. That doesn't mean non-Christians cannot do good works. doesn't mean that at all. What it means is that our nature is always bent towards sin. That our nature is corrupt. It is broken. It is broken beyond the repair of humanity. Meaning that nothing we can do in society or through government or through other natural means will we be able to stop the cascading fall of humanity. There's nothing that we can do, for example, as humanity to fix poverty. That doesn't mean we don't work to eradicate poverty, but it means at the end of the day, there's nothing, there's never going to be a utopian society, okay? Never is there going to be a perfect, why? Because this world is fallen, this world is broken. And so Paul describes them as dead men, That is, the life in them, there was nothing that was praiseworthy. There was nothing for which God was like so impressed with. And and he was like, wow, look at them. But not only were they dead, he goes on to describe that this deadness characterized their life. He said they were dead in their trespasses and sins in which they once walked. Uh, that word that Paul uses there in the Christian Standard Bible and other modern translations is the idea of one's course of life, one's character. The way your life is characterized was that of deadness. Their life was, was dead. Their life, there was nothing about it that was glorious, nothing about it that was wonderful. They were Therefore, not innocent. No one makes you sin. I mean, if you consider, if you've ever worked in children's ministry, ever, you know, uh, worked with a group of toddlers or a group of infants, even in your own home if you've seen them, you didn't have to teach your toddler how to be a thief. You didn't have to teach your toddler how to be stingy and self-centered. Even a crying baby is a reminder of our sin nature. Because that baby cries because it thinks that it is the center of the universe. It's a reminder to us that even in infancy, we are depraved, that we are fallen creatures. And that is what we believe in our statement of faith and what we believe the Bible teaches, that every human being is fallen. That there is no one that is good. That there is no one that is righteous. Again, does not mean that we don't do good things. It just means those good things will never measure up to God's standards. We were dead men walking, Paul says. But not only that, look at verse 2. He says that we were enslaved to sin and to Satan. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. 
The picture here Paul paints is not a life of freedom, but a life of bondage to sin and to Satan. This is what Luther meant when he wrote his work, The Bondage of the Will. Uh, he wrote that in response to Erasmus's freedom of the will. Erasmus had kind of picked up uh, Pelagian's old theology about freedom of will. And I know some of you are this morning kind of set up. What do you mean? We're free. We're free people. We have free will. Is that what Paul says? Do you have free will? Look again what he says. Following the, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You know, often we think about sin and we think about, we always think sin is like innovative. There's nothing innovative about sin. Sin is always following something else. So we need to think about it like a teenager rebelling, right? I'm going to go out and do my own thing, you know? No, you're not. You're, you're, you're following someone else. You're not really free. You're just following someone else. And that's what we do in sin. We were not free. Now, this does not mean that we were not free creatures. We have free choice. We can make decisions every day of the week, right? We, we, we decided to get in our car and to drive here today. We had free choice of that. But what, what does this passage teach us is that ultimately our wills are bound to sin. That is, if we were given a choice, we would choose sin every day of the week. Because we love sin. As Jesus said, we love the darkness more than we love the light. That's what we are apart from Christ. That's what we were before Christ. We were slaves to sin. As Paul said in our passage earlier, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin, this is the sin of humanity infects all of us. We can't do anything to get it out of us apart from the work of God. This passage here is very clear that salvation must be by grace alone because we are unable to do anything. He goes on in verse 3, the reason why it must be by grace and why we're in hopeless condition is really made clear in verse 3. Look what he says. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We obey one master, and that is ourselves. So he says, right? We obey the desires of the flesh. As John says in 1 John, right, that's what sin is, right? Obeying the desires of the flesh, d d living in the flesh. That's what we were. That's, we were enslaved to our evil, sinful desires. That's who we were. And notice how we are described here as children of wrath. That we are inheritors of wrath. Whose wrath? God's wrath. What Paul teaches here is that our sins deserve God's just wrath. That our sin deserves an eternal punishment. The amount of sin that we have heaped up demands that God judges sin. And in the Christian gospel, God does not sweep sin away. 
To be very clear this morning, God in the Christian gospel does not look past your sin and and that's no big deal. He's not like, you know, it's okay, I know you mess up, you know, we're all fallen, we're all broken, we get it, you know, it's okay, pat you on the back, get you going again. It's not what God does. So this morning, I want you to be very clear that if it had not been for Jesus Christ, the wrath of God remains on you. So if you're not a Christian this morning, that is you. Paul is describing your current state. That, that one day you will stand before God and he will judge you eternally. And that punishment is eternal separation from God in hell. A real place where you will really be alive. Our sins demand an infinite punishment. Then this morning you might think, well, I haven't done anything really bad. You know, I haven't killed anybody. I've not committed any, you know, heinous crime. You know, yeah, I might tell a white lie here and there, but, you know, doesn't everyone? Or this morning you might be self-justifying. You don't understand, like, what kind of circumstances I'm living in. You don't understand, you know, what my life was like as a child. You don't understand, you know... The Bible says very clearly that we are all fully deserving of God's wrath. That there is no innocent person living on some fictitious island somewhere. Everyone is guilty. Everyone is deserving of God's wrath. Brother, sister, if you're a Christian this morning, I hope that that just weighs on your soul this morning. Because if you do not understand the wrath of God, you will never understand the grace of God. Because if you don't get verse 1 through 3 in your soul, then you'll always think that salvation is by works. If you always think something good about yourself, like, you know, I'm worthy, I have value, you know, you know... you know, I grew up, you know, you know, in the '80s and '90s, where self-esteem was all like the big popular thing. So we got a few teachers from back. Remember, self-esteem is all about building self-esteem, right? It's all about making everybody feel good about themselves. You know, well, you know what really was that was about? It was really about you justifying your sin. That's what that was all about. It's about convincing children that it's okay to live in sin, and you can feel good about it. But brothers and sisters, we understand that that it's never good to live in sin. And so this morning, I want to be very clear with you this morning that our sin deserves God's wrath. Are you convinced that apart from God's grace, you are dead? And I'll say this again, and, and, and I say this often, but the last time I checked, dead men cannot believe. Dead men can't have faith. This is why I reject Pelagian's views or even a semi-Pelagian view and why I hold to an Augustinian doctrine that ability precedes belief. That is, that the Spirit of God must regenerate your soul before you can believe. And so our prayer this morning is God, Spirit, pour out on these people. Make them alive again. 
As I mentioned last week, no more than Ezekiel could stand there in the valley of dry bones and preach and scream and shout. No, it was the Spirit that breathed life. So I wonder, do you agree that you are dead in your sin? Do you agree that apart before salvation that you were dead? That you were on a fast train to hell. That's where you were going. Friend, this morning, if you're a Christian, we I just want to remind you, we're not afraid to talk about sin. I've just spent the, like the last 20 minutes talking about sin. We're not afraid of that this morning. That's why we're not afraid to confess our sin. We're not afraid to talk about this. We're not, we're not afraid to like pull the skeletons out of the closet. We don't want to sweep sin under the rug. We want to lessen its blow. We want to be honest and real about our sin. Why? Because of number two. Because number two, salvation must be by grace alone because God alone is able to make dead men alive again. Our passage makes clear that our condition is one of hopelessness. But in the middle of this passage, in verse 4, comes the sweetest words in all of Scripture. The words that ring in the soul of man for all of eternity. Like the moonlight shining in the darkest night comes these words. But God. But God. These words encourage us more than any others. We're not trying to explain away our sin because of verse 4, but God. As a roaring fire on a bitterly cold night warms us, so these words warm our soul. Without these words, we would have been left in despair of our sin, without hope, and without God in the world. That's what, that's what Paul says here down just a few verses later in verse 12. Without hope and without God. That was our condition. That's the scariest condition you'll ever be in. Without hope and without God. We were dead, but God. We were enslaved to sin and Satan, but God. We were unable to face God's wrath, but God. And if you're not a Christian this morning, but God will not come into your life until you turn from yourself and trust in Christ. But God has come. God has done something. And I pray that God would interrupt your life and give you a new life. I just want to point out a few things in this section. Why salvation must be by grace alone. Number one, we see here because of God's character. Salvation is an outflow of God's character. Notice how Paul describes God in this passage first as a merciful God. But God being rich in mercy. God is loaded with mercy. This, God is limitless in his mercy. God will never run out of mercy. This is so encouraging this morning. If we consider God's character in our salvation. God is merciful. What is mercy? It means that God has withheld judgment that is rightly deserved. 
So again, we're not trying to somehow diminish the sinfulness of sin. We're not trying to like explain sin away like it's not a big deal. No, we want to heap sin up, make it a big deal, and then what will happen is God's mercy will become even bigger. This is what Paul said in, in Romans 5. Grace abounds. As sin increases, grace abounds. That is, it's, it, every time sin gets bigger, grace gets, grows even larger. That's encouraging. That's like the hallelujah time. That's like, I can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God will never reach a day in eternity where he'll say, hey, I'm out of mercy. I'm done. God is merciful. More than that, we are told that God is a great, loving God. Being rich in mercy and how great, because of the great love with which He loved us. God's love is limitless. It is abounding. As Paul tells us in Romans 5, but as God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love isn't because we're lovable. God's love for you isn't the way your love works. You love those who will love you in return or that those who deserve your love. But God's work doesn't, it doesn't work that way. God loves indiscriminately. God loves rebels. More than that, he says that his love is immeasurable. His love is rich. His grace, his grace is abundant and limitless. No sin is too vile. No shame too unthinkable. No guilt too great that our God's grace will not reach. This is encouraging. Verse 5, Paul reminds us of our deadness and sin and thus builds the case on why salvation must be by grace alone. Because dead men can't do anything. While we were dead in our sins, he says, God made us alive together with Christ. Verse 5 is where the main, uh, uh, really the main point of the passage comes. Verse 5, made alive. We were dead and we've been made alive. We were once not alive, but now we are alive. And again, it's just reiterating everything I've just said about how dead men walking, how you know we weren't as free as we thought we were. That we didn't live this glorious sin life that we thought we had. No sin led us to death, but that God made us alive. Central to the Bible's teaching on salvation lies that not man nor works of man, but God alone can save. The Christian gospel teaches us very clearly that salvation is by grace because we are unable to do anything. As the prodigal son returned home, we remember the father's words. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. He was dead, but now he's alive. And friends, that describes us in Christ. That we were once dead, but now that we are alive. Once we were not, but now we are. Once we were not a people, but now we are a people. Once we were far off, but now we have been brought near. Friends, what made the Reformation completely transform the Western world 
was this truth. Before this time, no one had assurance of salvation. So this morning, if you have just a small measure of assurance that you're saved, uh, you're in a minority in the Reformation. Why the Reformation was like a wildfire is because people could finally be convinced that they could be saved. Before that, no one thought themselves ever worthy of salvation. Because they thought salvation was by works and not by grace. They could never measure up to these high and weighty standards that the Pope and the priest had laid upon them. But when the gospel came and when the truth came that salvation is not by works but by grace, the fire could not be stopped. This leads us to our third and final point. Salvation must be by grace alone because good works will never merit salvation. Paul concludes this section by really summarizing everything he has said. For by grace you have been saved. Now we don't have a lot of time here, but I just want to point out one very thing. That sort of uh, verbal idea there, and I don't often do this, but I want to show it to you. Grace, that is, it has an abiding result. It's something that happened in the past that has an abiding result. Have been. It's a past perfect. Past perfect passive. Meaning you didn't do it. And you don't sustain it. And you can be guaranteed of it. You've been saved by grace in the past. You're being saved by grace and you will be saved by grace. God saves. And you can be assured today of that truth. Paul makes clear that salvation is a gift from God. That it's not something that we earn. Not something that we do. As we've already made clear, there's nothing in us that will ever please God. Nothing in us will ever measure up to God's good standards. But this does not mean that good works are unimportant. Does not mean that good works are not something that we should pursue. But I want to show you two things very quickly. Number one, salvation by grace generates humility, not pride. So this morning, if you're coming in here thinking, wow, God is really impressed with me. God really must think I'm amazing because of all the good stuff I've done this week. And you don't understand salvation by grace. You're confused about the Christian gospel. That's the gospel of your own imagination, and it's no gospel at all. It's no good news at all. Gospel by works or or salvation by works is not good news. That's bad news. Secondly here in verse 10, notice here, salvation generates good works through us. It generates it. It produces it. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works. Like God saved us to produce good fruit in us. That's encouraging, right? That, that we don't produce good fruit and then like, bring him to God and like, hey, look at, look at how awesome I am. No, God saves sinners and produces goodness in them. This is a part of God's gracious plan that he would save sinners. Salvation by grace does not mean that we do not pursue holiness. It doesn't mean that we do not grow in grace and godliness. Salvation by grace means that we are now free to give God glory through good works. 
You remember that song, song or hymn that we sang at the beginning? Uh, Wesley describes what life was like before salvation. He was in a dungeon and he was chained. But the Spirit of God came and broke the chains and the door flung open and he walked out. He was finally free. He was finally free to glorify God and to love God. It's only through the Christian gospel that this true freedom comes. All other forms of freedom are pale in comparison to the freedom that there is in Christ Jesus. The freedom from the bondage of sin. The freedom from the bondage of the desires of the flesh. Only through the gospel do we now have life. Salvation must be seen as a gift. It is not by works. Nothing in us will ever merit God's grace. But yet he freely lavishes this grace upon us in Christ. Through faith we accept the gift. We're going to consider faith next week. How does faith work into all this? Do we have a responsibility? Yes. I don't want to diminish human responsibility this morning. right? So we're really heavy on God this morning, which is good. Right? But I don't want to diminish our responsibility to repent of our sins and trust in Christ. So I don't want to diminish that. So, so we don't believe we just kind of chill back and do nothing. We understand that all of salvation from beginning to end is God's work. It's his work. Thomas was born in, on July 2nd in 1489. He studied theology at Cambridge in 1503 where he would remain in the fellowship of the College of Jesus he would have remained in the academy had it not been for the political events that seemed to always follow him and find him. In 1533, he was appointed Archbishop of Canterbury, the highest position in the Church of England, a position which he held until his death. It would not become later in life for Thomas that he would be convinced of Protestant doctrine. Eventually, Thomas would die for his role in reforming the Church of England. And so on March 21st, 1556, Thomas was burned in effigy. But not before, months earlier, giving a complete rent recantation. He completely recanted on everything he believed. Everything he believed about salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Sure, his conditions were worse. Just a few weeks before his death, he watched his two closest friends burn alive. Latimer. And upon his death, as the day came, he repented of his sins. He repented of his sins knowing that salvation was by grace alone. And at his death, he would stand again on the side of a believer. And as he approached the flame, one of the things he said is that he would put out his right hand first to the flame as a, as a testimony that what he had done was wrong as a means of punishment, if you will, to his hand. He put it out and allowed his hand to burn first for his offending of God. And then he would die a gruesome death. But it was Thomas's theology, Thomas Cramner's, not his death, that did more to help reform the Church of England. In 1547... In one of his sermons, he said this, Salvation of mankind by only Christ our Savior, 
from sin and death everlasting. And in this sermon, he comments, justification is not the office of man, but of God. For man cannot justify himself by his own works, neither in part nor in whole. For that were the greatest arrogance and presumption of the man that Antichrist could set up against God. To affirm that a man might be his own works, take away and purge his own sins, and so justify himself. But justification is the office of God only. And is not a thing which we render unto him, but which we receive on him, or from him. Not which we give to him, but which we take of him by free mercy, and by the only merits of his most dearly beloved Son, our only Redeemer, Savior, and Justifier, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we do pray that your word would so transform our souls. That our lives would be marked that by salvation by grace. That this morning that the soul that gathers here that is burdened and overwhelmed with sin that would know that, that they can lay that aside and receive the free gift of salvation. I pray for the Christian this morning that is, that is really doubting their salvation and struggling in their sin. I pray that they would see that the chains have been loosed. That the door has been opened. That they are free free to glorify you. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.